it's so hard talking to to people, just normal people on on Twitter or whatever. Try to get them to understand that money and government debt are very closely related. They're very close to being the same thing, right? People people have this have the conception that there's money in the one hand and there's national debt on the other hand. They're two different things. They don't have anything to do with each other. Right. Hmm. Well, no, and I'm, MMT is saying, no, these are just both government liabilities. They're different types of liabilities, but they're not, you know, one of them is not significantly special from the other one. And so then when we talk about inflation, well, it's not about printing money for us because whether you quote unquote print money or quote unquote borrow, either way, what the, from the MMT perspective, what the government's doing is adding liabilities into private hands. It's issuing IOUs. So now there's more financial assets in private portfolios. And so that's more private wealth. Maybe it'll lead to more private spending, could be inflationary, right? But for us, it doesn't really matter so much what kind of IOU it is. The point is that there's more of them. Welcome to Activist NMT a podcast about nonviolent MNT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MNT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Sam Levy on the fundamental assumptions that underlie mainstream or neoclassical economics. Sam is a research scholar with the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, a PhD candidate in economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, or UMKC, and a co-founder of the online advocacy group Deficit Owls. This is part one of a two-part conversation but it's also part two of a larger four-part series about the relationship between mainstream and MMT. Parts one and four are with Dirk Entz and Oscar Voltzgaard. Before getting to the heart of our conversation, Sam gives an update on his progress towards his PhD and dissertation topic. Regarding mainstream assumptions, as a jumping off point, I'm going to briefly review the paper I discussed last week with Dirk and Oscar which is a 2019 paper by Danish economist Jeppe Drudel. The paper is called A Kinder Egg on MMT, and it summarizes the common mainstream concern for the long-term fiscal sustainability of government spending and its corresponding debt and interest on the debt. Since MMT makes it clear that much more spending on public purpose is perfectly safe, let alone desperately needed, the mainstream argument is often focused directly onto the MMT project. In brief, under mainstream assumptions, if you model out government spending to infinity, which at a minimum means 75 to 100 years, there are grave concerns. The issuer may be forced to make one of exactly two terrible choices. Either issue currency to pay off its debt and the interest, which would obviously cause hyperinflation, or, despite the ability to issue its own currency, 
voluntarily default on its obligations in order to avoid the hyperinflation. Either way, the result is genuine economic Armageddon. For more details of this argument, I recommend that you listen to last week's episode and also read the post that I wrote that was inspired by it. A link to both can be found in the show notes. The post has links to papers by Yeppe, Dirk and Oscar, three important ones by Scott Fulweiler, and more. Sam and I also talk about the many other related assumptions and topics of mainstream economics. This includes deductive versus inductive reasoning, quantitative versus qualitative research methods, the Great Depression versus the Great Vacation, and statistical overfitting. We also discuss the paradoxical mainstream view of how the central government and its bank are seen as both a helpless and dainty little flower who can do nothing to stop market set interest rates and bond vigilantes, and at the same time, a potentially catastrophically destructive force that can turn recessions into depressions. We also answer a question by a patron of activist MMT, Alexander, regarding the mainstream response to sectoral balances in the context of loanable funds. Sam also describes how and why mainstream economics considers money to be special. Basically, in the mainstream view, money is a scarce physical thing. In other words, just another commodity. This means that the only way for someone in the non-government sector, citizens and businesses, to get new money is for it to be ripped out of the hands of another citizen or business. Under the theory of loanable funds, even the currency issuer must get its money from the non-government sector, and so must also be ripped from the hands of someone else. Hence, government spending is a zero-sum game and causes crowding out. Because in this view, money is scarce. Although mainstream understands that the issuer issues, their assumption of full employment means that issuing currency without matching it one-to-one with taxation or bond sales, what they call printing money, is always potentially inflationary. This is because if everything is already employed, then there is nothing left to buy. Finally, MMT recognizes that all kinds of money, including reserves, cash, bonds, and other treasuries, are not scarce, but just different types of IOUs. As Sam told me, finance itself is not scarce, it's a coordination mechanism. This insight and reality changes the battle from, from whose hands will we take the money, to, who will we put in charge of this coordination? As MMT asserts, the latter has always been the case. The former is predicated on the assumption that our money can and never will be coordinated by government and hence us. But even if it were, it would obviously be done poorly. As Neil Wilson said to Phil Armstrong on their recent Gower Initiative interview, the plane works fine, we just need a new crew. Sam takes this further by saying that we need a new process by which to choose the crew. However, if money truly were scarce and special, as in the mainstream view, then even if we did get money out of our politics, even if we did get a new process, and even if we did get a new and good crew, none of it would matter. Because if the money really was scarce in this way, 
then in order to do anything, we would always have to rip it out of the hands of somebody in order to pay for it. We as citizens and the government that is supposed to represent us can never be in charge of coordinating our money. And not so coincidentally, all of these assumptions happen to be very convenient for those already in power. Regarding other mainstream assumptions, I discussed the neutrality of money in episode 57, which is part two with Assad Zaman, and I discussed historical time in last week's episode with Dirk and Oscar. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. And now on to my conversation with Sam Levy. So uh, just a regular cheesecake, how often do you bake? This is the second cheesecake I've ever made in my life. First one was earlier this year. I'm trying to get more into cooking and baking and stuff, you know. How did it turn out? The first one was pretty good a few months ago. <laughs> um, this one is it's supposed to be a burnt Basque cheesecake, so you like. Oh, that makes it easy. You can burn it, and then yeah, you do yeah, well. exactly. <laughs> and ironically, I think I had the oven on too low. I don't think it burned as much as it was supposed to. Uh. <laughs> How are you, man? What you been up to? Uh, well, um, we just, uh, as of today, we are now virtual until January 21st and my wife's district is virtual to the, till February and my kids districts is, uh, just been considered as high risk. So they're going to consider going all virtual. Hmm. So, uh, what's, what's up with UMKC? Yeah, we're going all virtual, um, after Thanksgiving. So, uh, yeah, our last class was um, last in-person stuff was this past Friday. But you've been in person since September? We've been in person the whole semester, except that in, only a very small number of classes, as far as I can tell, have been in person. They say that 50% of them are online and 50% of them are in person. But frankly, when I walk around the walk around campus here, there's hardly anybody here. So it, I mean, maybe they're, maybe it's like the medical school or something that I don't see where all the in-person classes are. But from what I see, there's hardly anything. And how packed are your classes? Are, are there people virtual, like while you, like some are live and some are virtual? Well, so I'm in three courses that I'm taking and then one course that I'm the TA for. And the three that I'm taking are all completely online. And then okay. the one that I TA for, uh, half of the lectures are in person and uh, then there's a discussion section in person. And they're all synchronously online as well. So some people come live and some people join over Zoom. And um, 
the in-person, it's kind of funny. I, I, I mean, the reason that everybody was pushing so hard for in-person was to get, you know, that real world student experience, but then the intent, the attendance at the in-person section has been declining precipitously the whole semester and sure. more people have been coming to it online anyway. So it was kind of like, maybe we should have, I'm not sure just how much benefit there was compared to the risk, but brave new world. Yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, okay. Well, uh, uh, Sam, thank you so much for coming on. I'm very looking very forward to talking with you again. You were my very first guest before I even knew that I had a podcast. Um, so this is, this is going to be something like, Ooh, I don't even know, 65 or something. And so congratulations, yeah. man. And thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be on. Well, thank you. I've, I've, uh, I have done a lot of preparation, not just for you, but just like I've really been sort of steeping myself. And uh, yeah, so no, I'm very, I'm really looking forward to to hearing what you have to uh, to share with me. Um, so, can you, uh, you know, can you give us an update on your status as as a PhD candidate? Sure. Well. Um... Uh, the answer is that I'm taking my sweet time with this program. Um, part of that is because of the absolutely abysmal state that the job market, the academic job market is going to be in for the next couple of years. So I'm not feeling a lot of pressure to, to finish quickly. Um, and then part of it is just so that I can, you know, get more done and learn more things and have more under my belt before I have to do interviews and stuff like that. So I'm nearing the end of of my required coursework. I'll probably have just another couple of courses to take and then I'll be done with coursework. And then I have to put together a dissertation and I, um, uh, I don't know, uh, like unofficially I'm a good way into that because I think that some of the papers that I've been working on the last few years will become part of that dissertation, but officially mm. I've done nothing. So I haven't, <laughs> I haven't like put together a committee or made a proposal or any of that yet. So that's all still in the future for me. And, and, is the is it is it often the fact that the coursework in PhD programs is really sort of you know piece here piece there from each of these courses that eventually become your PhD or can it be speak totally unrelated? Um, you can your dissertation can be unrelated to your coursework, but you know especially in our program and I think this is true of most programs as well. It's typical for a PhD course at the end of the course you write a paper of some kind and that's your the thing you turn in for the course. And if you're smart, you're doing those with an eye towards your dissertation, right? Like, how can I start a project now in this course mm. setting so I can get feedback from a professor and and continue working on it and evolve it and develop it and, you know, finesse it and make it into something bigger and better that then becomes part of your dissertation. So I think that I think that's typical as a strategic, you know, good thing to do. I mean, it, it it's tough, though, because your core courses, like, you know, you're taking like your first course in in micro or macro or something, you wouldn't be looking at cutting edge stuff necessarily in that course, or at least not the bulk of the course. And so it's more like the later courses where you're, you'd be doing like fields um, or independent research or independent studies, that those kinds of uh, courses where the projects are more likely to feed into a dissertation. Okay. And, and 
Do you have a particular, I mean, you obviously have something in mind because you said that those papers will probably feed into it. Do you have a particular topic that you're leaning towards? Oh, sure. So, okay. So first of all, the way that this, this PhD program here at UMKC is kind of unique. It is an interdisciplinary PhD program or IPHD. And what that means is every student has, you know, their discipline, mine's economics, obviously, but everybody also has to pick a co-discipline, which is like another department that you take coursework in and work with faculty there. And then your dissertation is expected to be interdisciplinary in some fashion. Um, so combining your, your primary discipline and your co-discipline. And so for me, my co-discipline is public administration. Um, and, and so I'm taking coursework in the public administration department um, and working with some of the faculty there. And so my dissertation is going to be expected to incorporate economics and public administration and so I don't know if your listeners are familiar or will remember, but in the past, I've done some work on uh, World War II. So specifically, I was looking at, um, uh, there's two papers that are out. They're both on the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity's website. Um, the first one is about the U.S. Treasury during World War II. So it was kind of piecing together the um, economic worldview that they held during the tre- at the Treasury during the war and that they used to you know, finance the war and prosecute the war efforts, um, and comparing that to modern monetary theory. So that was a paper. And then I did another paper that was kind of similar in aim, but broader in scope, which was to look at sort of war economics in general and focusing on World War II and the post-war and trying to get a sense of how do economists, how did economists anyway, think about fighting a war and mobilizing the economy for a major event like that. Um, and trying to put together, I mean, the paper is kind of an overview of some different aspects of, of this, I'm call, I called it mobilization theory, um, different sort of problems you might face, what to do with them, the policy instruments, the political economy of it, um, and pointing towards some directions of further research for that. And so what I think is eventually going to happen, probably, maybe we'll see what happens, is I'll put together a dissertation that will kind of focus on mobilization um, and will probably incorporate and deepen this treasury research as well as the broader uh, lit- literature review on, on at war economics. And then, uh, so, so typically the way you do a dissertation is it's, it's in one of two formats. It's either like a book length format. So you'd write kind of a few hundred pages that would be your dissertation as one thing. And so it would have different chapters and stuff. The alternative way to do it is called the three essays or three papers approach, where you have you write three research papers that are related on some theme to each other. And so I I don't know where what, what direction I'm going to go with this yet, but um, what I just listed was two two parts to a theme, and so probably the third part um, I'd like to do some kind of inquiry into. And I haven't started this at all. This is just like ideas I've been I've been tossing around, but an inquiry into how the government gets the resources it uses to do stuff, right? So the the, uh, MMT kind of makes a big deal out of this. And if you listen to the way Mosler introduces MMT, a lot of the time he'll start with, you know, what he calls the MMT money story. And he's talking about, well, the government needs to get resources to provision itself. And how does it do that? And he says, well, they could ask for volunteers, but that doesn't work very well. Or they could just conscript people or confiscate goods. And then there's some obvious reasons that we don't want to be doing that all the time. And so what we do is the tax-driven money system. We create a currency. We demand 
that you pay it back to us in taxes. And so that creates the demand from the population who need to provide goods and labor to the government to get the currency to pay the tax. So really what that is, is creating a market, right? So Mosler just lists out three things the government can do. It can ask for volunteers, it can, it can conscript stuff, or it can create markets. And Moser's story just kind of leaves it at that. But I hear that and I go, well, there's a lot of questions there. Like, hmm. like, when should they be doing each of these? Because it's really, it's not true that they only do one of them, that they only do the, the market one. Because they do ask for volunteers for things and they do occasionally conscript things or you know, they'll use eminent domain to take some piece of land or something like that. So really all three of them are kind of happening to varying degrees at different times. And so I'm kind of thinking I'd like to dig deeper into that and take a look at like, what are the different situations where these different strategies have advantages or disadvantages or, you know, whatever, and probably specifically applied to war where all three of them are sort of more visible. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that we have all three of them kind of all the time, but especially in war, there's much, there's much more going on in terms of calling on the population for volunteers, whether that's to be a soldier or whether that's to, you know, recycle aluminum or whatever it is the government needs the population to do that they ask for help on. There's much more in terms of conscripting people, obviously, and taking over factories and things like that. So um, that's kind of my idea for the third paper is to pursue that question and, and see where it goes. But I haven't started on that project at all. That's great. Obviously, obviously, it will be uh, valuable as climate change becomes more of a challenge. Um, Episode two was a discussion of Modern Money in the War Treasure, your first paper. Um, I would like to move on, but can you just give like a summary of what is it called public administration? What is that? Sure. So public administration is um, it's kind of like uh, the nuts and bolts of how things get done. Um, and typically you're talking about the public sector or the government, although you don't necessarily have to be a big component of public administration is about looking at nonprofits, um, and other kinds of entities like that. But whereas political science kind of focuses on, on things like politics, elections, uh, constitutional rules and things like that structure of, of, um, of, of the political system, public administration is a little more focused on sort of behind the scenes, nuts and bolts of how things happen. So bureaucracy, administrators, the people who actually do the thing, you know, like the person who is behind the counter at the DMV or the secretary of defense or, you know, all the range in between of people who are actually making things happen and performing public services and, and moving resources around and that kind of thing. And, you know, there's, there is focus on how the government is structured. So you might be talking about, like, uh, is it the case that we've got large bureaucracies or do we have many different departments or do we have, you know, in the last couple of decades, we've been moving towards the, like, outsourcing network model where there's a lot more in the way of public-private partnerships. You'd be looking at, like, how, what, you know, what is, like, the philosophy of, um, of public administration. So one big topic is, like, uh, that gets debated often is the what's called the uh, politics administration dichotomy. That's an idea that like, okay, the elected officials, it's their job to decide what the government does. And it's the government's staff's job to do that and not argue with it and just make it all happen regardless of what it is or how they feel about it. So one, you know, take on that is, oh yeah, that's the thing. That's how government works. We need that to be a functioning society. Another take is, well, that's impossible. That's naive. That's unrealistic. It's never been like that. 
Um, so, the, so anyway, that's just to give you an example of the kinds of things you talk about in public administration. Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, okay, so let's let's move on to the to the you know the reason I brought you here, which is mainstream assumptions. Um, this is it, it's been it's been quite a struggle to squeeze in what I want to talk about. I mean, this could easily be I mean I guess a decades long conversation really, but so the academic papers that mainstream economists write about you know, criticizing MMT are rarely written to communicate directly with MMT economists, in my view, in my, you know, limited experience. It seems to me that papers that criticize MMT are not in the vein of pluralism and learning from MMT economists. It's, it is more to persuade the public to ignore MMT, to dismiss MMT, and cynically to discriminate against MMT and supporters. So the academic papers, I think, are not where the battle is taking place. The battle is taking place in the world around those papers, the assumptions on which those papers are built. And so the, the assumptions are created through the lens through which they look. Could you briefly define or summarize the worldview of mainstream economics? You know, and then we'll talk about the assumptions that come from that. Sure, I can try. I mean, so... Uh... Like any field, mainstream economics has a lot of people and they do a lot of different things. And so when you get that sort of situation, it's hard to you know, put a box around it because whatever you say, there's going to be somebody somewhere who says, hey, that's, that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing something totally different. So you know, anytime you read about mainstream economics says this or the assumptions are this, the chances are pretty good it's a generalization. Is it a fair generalization or not? That's the kind of question you you got to be asking in response to what you read. So, you know, I read heterodox papers that sometimes I think have very fair generalizations of mainstream economics. Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing on average, even if it's not every every bit. And then occasionally you read critiques that are actually pretty bad and kind of straw manning uh, what they're saying. And so, I don't know, I want to stay clear of, of straw manning them um, because I think that just hurts our arguments, right? So what you want to do generally is attack uh, the strongest thing they put forward. But, you know, I got to say something, so I am going to have to generalize. And so I'd say probably one of the most important things in mainstream economics is what's called methodological individualism. And so methodological individualism is a, you know, fancy academic term that means the starting place for inquiry. If we have questions, how do we answer them? The starting place is always with individuals and how they make choices or react to things. So the unit of analysis is almost always a person. Um, that's not necessarily true for other fields and certainly not true for heterodox economics. So like right now, just as an example, in, in my co-discipline, that's called organizational theory that just looks at different sort of theories of human organizations. And the unit of analysis there sometimes is the individual, but sometimes it's the organization or sometimes it's a network of organizations, or sometimes it's the whole population of organizations, right? All of those are fair game in that field. And heterodox economics likes to come from these different approaches as well, whereas in mainstream econ, it's almost exclusively about the individual. And if you want to say anything about some bigger unit, if you want to say anything about a business or about a sector or about the economy as a whole, you have to start by talking about individuals first and combine them together until you get something that that is a, that is a you know a group of individuals right so maybe that's like a little bit confusing but to give to hopefully give you a little bit of a concrete example 
it was more common in, say, the Keynesian era, like the 1940s to 60s, for economic models to just make a statement about what a whole sector would do, right? So you have a sector, like the household sector, right? You're talking about all households, and you might have an equation that specifies how much consumption spending they're going to do. So it's one equation that determines, oh, here's how much consumption spending households do. So your unit of analysis there is the whole sector, right? You're not really talking about what's going on inside the sector. You just take the sector as your basic unit. Maybe you combine sectors to see what's going on, right? And so that would have been fair game at the time. Today, if you, well, maybe it's changing a little bit, but at least as of 10 or 15 years ago, if you wanted to do that, somebody, your, the response from the mainstream community would be like, where are your micro foundations? Where right, is your... Yeah. Yeah, where's your individual level behavior that justifies what you're saying happens at this sector level, right? So that's a really important uh, assumption. Um, an another one that's an important part of the frame. Oh, yeah, sorry, do you want to say something? Uh, well, actually, if I may follow up on that. So, so basically, it's saying ignoring relationships, ignoring, ignoring social interaction. And it, it implies that the macro, the macro economies, obviously, is in that view, is built on micro foundations. And the whole is exactly equal to the sum of its parts, where in reality, the whole is much greater than the sum of its parts. Well, so, okay, so um, I'm going to say uh, in terms of like uh, this greater than sum of parts issue and, and like aggregation and emergence, I'm going to say it depends because if you take individuals and you put them together, like you have a group of people and you consider how they interact, then you can start to get that sort of you know, interesting more than the sum of its parts behavior. And to some extent, that's what game theory is trying to do. So game theory is a, is, I mean, really, it's a branch of mathematics, but it's, it's a big important part of mainstream economics that considers interactions. And what if we have more than one person or a group of people, and they have to make strategic interactions with each other. So game theory does try to consider that. Now, that being said, in macroeconomics for a long time, the workhorse kind of model was, is what was called a representative agent model. So representative agent actually has just one person and ignores interactions and aggregation issues and just says, well, this one person is going to, they've got some utility function that determines like what they want and they're going to try to maximize utility, maximize their happiness through time. And that is how we model the economy as if it's a single person who's making choices in, in total isolation. Mm -hmm. Um, so that kind of model does completely ignore interactions. Where the research has been moving lately is um, to what's called heterogeneous agent model. So you might see heterogeneous agent New Keynesian model or Hank, um, and that is trying to include social interactions. So that's you would have a handful, more than one individual at least, and try to model how they interact. Now what I'm going to say here is that when you start with this individual approach, it's not that you can't have social interactions and that you can't have emergence and complex behavior like that. It's just that it's hard, right? You, you have all these aggregation problems of trying to combine these things and keep track of them all and the models become intractable very quickly. You, you know, you, there's just no easy mathematical solution for them. Um, and so that, that method of approach is, is just not very friendly to the kind of thing you're talking about, to this more than the sum of its parts stuff in a way that if you just consider the economy as a whole or consider individual sectors um, or consider just different units of, of analysis, 
that you can more easily get to those kinds of arguments, right? Okay. Uh, mainstream economics really has this, like, I don't know, almost schizophrenic character to it where the, there's the short-run analysis of events and a long-run analysis of events, and they're, total, they're completely disconnected from each other. So what they'll say is that in the short run, there can be fluctuations around the trend for the economy. So the economy is growing on this trend, but it, you know, it doesn't just grow. It doesn't just follow the trend perfectly. There's fluctuations around the trend up and down, you know, and back mm -hmm. and whatever. And for them, mm -hmm. the fluctuations and the trend are determined by two completely different things. The trend for them, this is where the long run comes in, is determined by supply side factors. So the capital stock and the labor, the, you know, the population and to the state of technology and stuff like that. For them, that determines the trend. And then fluctuations around the trend are determined by like the short run Keynesian kind of issues of aggregate demand and stuff like that. And how those two things link up is not especially clear. Like at one point I, w I went around asking people, has anybody seen... Uh, a model where these two things like exist at the same time and nobody could really answer that question for me. So there's two kind of separate, separate modeling universes, one looking at short run issues and one looking at long run issues. And they, they, uh, I don't, you know, the linkage there is, is kind of weak, but okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you said, I forget the term, but basically something individualism. Uh, so was there more to their, uh, you were going to go on with more regarding their, their worldview? Uh, yeah, methodological individualism. So that's about the individual is kind of the only acceptable unit of analysis for them most of the time. Uh, another direction you might go, I would say, would be like market focus. Um, and so, again, not strictly true, but like whenever they're talking about people and, and interactions and, and like what are the what are the ways that people interact with the world? They're almost always talking about transactions or buying and selling or contracts or something, you know, property, something market focused, they really have a very difficult time with like other kinds of aspects of human reality, right? Like, so like I selling mean, commodities, I think you seem to be saying. Yeah, yeah. Selling commodities or, you know, hiring or firing somebody. And again, the, uh, economics, a lot of people do different things. And, you know, there's like the economics of sports and the economics of marriage and the economics of drugs. But almost all that stuff is always going to kind of come back to this sort of like, uh, impersonal perspective on things. And, and part of the reason for that is because of this, that another aspect of what they do, which is like a focus on deductive reasoning. They're not the worst in terms of this. The worst is the Austrian economists who argue mm -hmm. that like deduction is the only way to know anything. And, oh. and so, so if, yeah. if I may, deduction is, deduction is just making assumptions independent of observation. Induction is, observing things in the real world. Yeah. So deduction is like Sherlock Holmes, right? So Sherlock Holmes like sees that, you know, there's like a scuff on your, on your wrist and he deduces that you must have killed so-and-so in the kitchen with the candlestick or whatever. I know I'm mixing metaphors there. Uh, <laughs> but, but like by using a series of logical um, concepts where each one implies the next one, right? You, you start with some assumption or observation and through a series of logic steps, you are led to a conclusion, right? If A is true, then B must be true. If B is true, then C must be true. If C is true, then D must be true. And A is true, so D must be true. That's deduction, right? right? right. Um, induction is when you look at the world and you, you generalize, right? Like I have seen 
only white swans. So I'm going to generalize and say swans are white. All swans are white, right? That's an example of induction. Both of those methods of, of reasoning have problems. So no, neither of them are perfect, right? Like with the white swan method, famously, people thought there were only white swans until they discovered a black swan, right? So mm. generalizing from a limited number of examples can lead you into trouble if your sample is not representative. Meanwhile, logical deduction, this kind of reasoning uh, analytically like that, leads you into trouble if the assumptions you start off with turn out not to be true, right? And especially that's difficult because almost any time you're making a deduction, you have all kinds of unstated or untested assumptions that you might not even realize you're making, but that are going to affect the final conclusion. And if you don't then check your conclusions against the real world, you won't know whether you did it right or not, right? Right. So for the Austrian economists, who I'm guessing your listeners have gotten into arguments with on Twitter, <laughs> uh, those folks have a belief that only the deduction is the only way to reasonably know anything. Uh, we, we can't look at the world and we can't use empirical evidence. It's all, it, it's deceiving you, right? There's always problems with empirical evidence. It's deceiving you. The only way to know anything is to reason carefully about it. Sit in your armchair and reason very carefully from premise to conclusion, John Harvey gives a great analogy. He uses horses, but he says, instead of observing and talking with business managers in the real world, the economists go to their offices and they just talk to them amongst themselves and say, what would I do if I was a business manager? Yeah, I that's, mean- That's deduction. Yeah, and, and to some extent that really is true. Like I was, I was looking at a, a textbook the other day for something called industrial organization. So industrial organization is like a subfield of microeconomics. And you know what they do is they try to make models of different kinds of situations that businesses might find themselves in, you know, this kind of monopoly or, or you're selling durable goods or, you know, whatever, just different structures of the, of the, of the business world. And almost none of them are informed by the real world. Right. And so the thing that was funny about this book was, I, I think it was like the book had like 17 chapters or something. Mm. And for the first 16 of them were just all these different models of these different situations and whatever, whatever. And then the last chapter was about, prices in the real world and empirical, you know, actual evidence for what prices do. And that the chapter starts out with like, all of the previous models in this book have assumed that prices are very flexible and that they are the thing that, you know, adjust to allocate resources and in response to, to pressures in the economy and stuff. But it mm -hmm. turns out that in the real world, it doesn't mm -hmm. seem to work like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so the book was kind of like dancing around, like, so everything else in this book is crap. Right. Mm -hmm. But that comes like right at the end, the last chapter, and they don't really pursue it that much. And so it's, you know, they're not as bad as the Austrians, but the instinct is almost always to turn to deduction first and not let go of it until it's like severely invalidated by the evidence. And I will say to mainstream economics credit in the last two or three decades, they have been turning much more towards empirical studies. So really going out into the world and, and collecting data and trying to verify our theories or reject them um, as any good science should, we think. Um, and like there are some very concrete areas where they've, they've, there's been some tangible change, right? So the minimum wage is one of them. So a few decades ago, everybody was convinced in the mainstream world that minimum wages are bad because, you know, you draw a labor supply and a labor demand curve, your supply and demand curve. And if you have you know, a price floor, you're artificially raising the price, then, oh no, you're going to cause unemployment. So everybody agreed that 
but minimum wages are bad. And really the only justification for that was that, that theoretical model, just that deductive model, right? Well, lo and behold, when we go start looking, it turns out not to be true. And right. you know, most of the evidence indicates that minimum wages really don't cause unemployment. In fact, they might, very, it would be a very small effect, but they might even increase employment, right? The reason for that would be that you know, you're shifting some income to workers, workers have a higher propensity to spend, so they go buy more stuff, so demand in the and economy is higher. It? And right. of course, who do they buy it from? So they get that money to the, you know, the CEOs, whatever the firms get that money anyway. Right, it comes back. But it's like an excuse. I mean, in a way, it's an excuse to not talk. It is an excuse to not talk to the desperate. And, and you know, they say, uh, I've read um, that, you know, induction is not good potentially because it increases the, you know, if you observe someone, you're going to have your own biases. They're going to have their own biases with how they behave when they're being observed or what they say to you. You know, they may say what they wish they were as opposed to, you know, so, so they, so deduction is, it seems to be promoted that it eliminates that potential bias. But in my view, it doesn't just reduce total bias. It must dramatically increase the bias of those who are doing the deduction? Um, I think it depends. Uh, well, first of all, I'd say on the bias issue, so you're talking about like, why don't they just go ask people? Like, why don't they just go ask businesses how they set prices or something like that? Why do they have to come up with, you know, crazy abstract models? So that, right. that distinction is really, I think it's, it to some extent is about deduction versus induction, but it's also about um, quantitative versus qualitative research methods. So quantitative research methods, that means you go collect numerical data of some kind, you go measure something, you go look at a time series of price changes or something like that, or numerical data. Qualitative is sort of the softer kinds of data where maybe you might do interviews or you might do surveys or you might do focus groups or something like that, or ethnography, um, uh, which is uh, can be a, a bunch of different things, but you know you can think of like, when researchers, especially anthropologists, do a lot of ethnography, they'll go live with a group of people or, or work with them or something to observe mm -hmm. them and to, to you know, get at these qualitative aspects of what they're doing, things that you can't easily like measure with a, you know, some measuring tool or something. Okay. Um, so yeah, mainstream e economics has a real hard time with qualitative research. They just, it doesn't fit the worldview very well. And there are examples. And so, uh, you know, if prices are, are a good... Uh, candidate for that, right? So there's a book from the late 90s called Asking About Prices, where this mainstream economist says, like, you know, right around that time, the, the macro is very interested in, like, sticky prices and how come prices sometimes don't adjust or sometimes they take a long time to adjust or what's with that. So this guy, Alan Blinder, writes the book. He says, why don't we just go ask people? Why don't we go ask them how <laughs> they set prices, right? And comes up with, like, a lot of challenges to, to the theory. It turns out when you the, you know, the, the microeconomic theory that's like economists, here's what we think businesses do. If you actually go ask businesses, it turns out that's not what they do, right? So you go ask people, you reveal that the theory has problems. Another good example of that, more recent, is a guy named um, Truman Bewley, who is also doing studies where he did hundreds of interviews um, asking people how, asking businesses how they set prices and why. And again, answers that turn out to be very different from, from mainstream theory. So it, I'd say mainstream economics, again, not as bad as Austrians in terms of favoring deduction over, over induction, favoring reasoning over going out and looking. 
But what ma- where mainstream, I think, really does fail and, and has not yet gotten there, and it doesn't even seem to be on track to get there, is quantitative versus qualitative, right? So heterodox economists are much more likely to say we need both quantitative and qualitative research methods. We need to collect data and collect numbers. We also need to just ask people what they're doing, observe what they're doing, right? Oh, okay. Okay. So, so looking at the grander scale of things and going in and talking to individuals, roughly speaking. Yeah. I mean, just any kind of way that we can see what's going on in the world that's available to us, we shouldn't leave out. Right. You know? Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's good on that topic. Um, so, so if we may, so I'd like to move on to, I don't want to relive the argument that I discussed last week in Yepa's paper and in Darkin Asker's response. But I would like to to focus in a little bit on the major assumptions that he has made in there. And so just very briefly, um, I read last week I spoke with Dirk Entz and uh, Oscar Volzgaard on their response to Yepe Drudel's paper called A Kinder Egg on MMT. And it's basically the mainstream concern of long-term fiscal responsibility, fiscal sustainability of government spending. So what he has done, what mainstream says, is that on the assumption of loanable funds, if you model government spending out to infinity, where infinity is defined like 75 to 100 years at least, then there is a significant possibility that we will reach the point that there will be genuine economic Armageddon. Either by hyperinflation or by choosing to default to avoid that hyperinflation, even though we can obviously we can obviously issue currency, which they would call print money. So so this is based on uh, the these core assumptions, as I see it, first and foremost, loanable funds, second, which implies that financial crowding out is possible and that. Uh, therefore, the the although the short term interest rate can be set by the central bank, they argue, and which loanable funds significantly implies that all interest rates beyond that are set by real so called real forces in the marketplace. Which is, you know, that says a lot that you know things set in the market are so called real, <laughs> and that the central bank is uh, helpless to do anything about it. And then you know MMT says that the government spends money by issuing currency, but mainstream says that it is actually possible for the issuer to actually borrow money from a commercial bank. And, uh, and then the, finally, it's, you know, it, they assume, obviously, they assume full employment, in either current or inevitable full employment. And they have this godlike foresight to know what federal spending is going to be next year, let alone 100 years from now. So it's like all of these, those are really, and I'm sure I've missed some significant ones. Those are massive assumptions to that, that are completely disconnected from the real world. And I know that that was a lot, but you can just sort of take that and go with it as you will. Okay, well, um, sure. I mean, the mainstream, it's kind of ironic, actually. The, the mainstream has a serious problem with money. And in many ways, they will admit it, uh, like, like there were a class of models for a long time, macro models that just didn't have money at all and would even, you know, would say in the text, like 
this model doesn't have money and there's no reason for it to have money. Like we don't even understand why there would be money if this was the world we lived in, right? Um, and then because they know that, okay, well, actually money obviously does exist and we're economists and we have to say something about money. So they, you know, people started to try to find ways to force money into the models, right? Like, okay, maybe people just like money. So let's say they like money and so there's a preference for money. So we'll cram it in that way. Or, you know, there's a few other things that they could do to try and jam money into these models to, because that's, you know, you can't, nobody would really take them seriously if they came out and said, we believe there's no reason money exists, right? So, <laughs> um, but then at the same time, they treat money as special in a way that MMT, ironically, modern money theory does not. In modern money theory, money is just another financial asset. And this is really something that I think is um, pretty awesome about MMT that is, is one of those things that really does help broaden your perspective. And, you know, it's like the paradigm shift uh, glasses, you know, dark sunglasses come off and you see the light moment. MMT treats money as just another financial asset, just another different kind of IOU, right? We've got bonds, we've got mortgages, We've got bank deposits, we've got currency. All of those are like the same class of thing. They have different properties, you know, some are more liquid or different interest rates or whatever, but they're all IOUs, right? A gift card and currency for MMT are like the same kind of thing. Hmm. For different, different levels on the hierarchy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's the hierarchy of money, the hierarchy of liabilities, and you know, they might be in different places, but that's their liabilities, their IOUs. Mainstream economics, maybe ironically, treats money as special it's m money is not i mean sometimes they'll you you help you will hear mainstream economists say money is debt but there's not really much in the models that that makes that clear and really money and debt are kind of usually treated categorically different in those models um which leads to some of the troubles they have right like uh it leads to all kinds of confusion about investment and saving it leads to confusion about interest rates um, leads to confusion about government deficits and the currency issuer and leads to confusion about inflation. I mean, really inflation is probably one of the most, like has the most practical uh, consequences. Like it's so hard talking to, to people, just normal people on, on Twitter or whatever, try to get them to understand that money and government debt are very closely related. They're very close to being the same thing, right? People people have this have the conception of there's money in the one hand and there's national debt on the other hand. They're two different things. They don't have anything to do with each other, right? Hmm. Well, no, and I'm, MMT is saying, no, these are just both government liabilities. They're different types of liabilities, but they're not, you know, one of them is not significantly special from the other one. And so then when we talk about inflation, well, it's not about printing money for us because whether you quote unquote print money or quote unquote borrow, either way, what the, from the MMT perspective, what the government's doing is, adding liabilities into private hands. It's issuing IOUs. So now there's more financial assets in private portfolios. And so that's more private wealth. Maybe it'll lead to more private spending, could be inflationary, right? But for us, it doesn't really matter so much what kind of IOU it is. The point is that there's more of them, right? If, on the other hand, if your, your ontological starting place is that money and debt are two totally different things, well, that's why people have a notion that printing money is highly inflationary, but government borrowing money is not inflationary at all, or at least not as much, right? Because that's, the, that's where they're starting from. Those two things are totally different things. And so 
printing money is the inflationary one. What does borrowing have to do with inflation? Inflation's about money and bonds aren't money, right? So that that's hmm. that that's that perspective. And it, it, it can be pretty hard to cross, you know, from one to the other. That That's what the paradigm shift moment is, right? That uh, that epiphany moment there is when you can make that connection, I think. I understood pretty much all that you said, but I'm not understanding that they don't consider money or they consider money very special. I don't see I don't see how it's how that is what is their foundational problem that I don't see how it connects to this particular argument. Okay, sure. So take loanable funds, right? So the loanable funds story is that businesses need to invest, you know, they need to buy machines or whatever or build machines. And how are they going to do it? They got to borrow money. They go to the loanable funds market, who has the money? Savers have the money because they've earned money and they haven't spent it. And so that's where this whole loanable funds story really comes from. We know from just like simple, you know, just play around with the accounting and the accounting tells you that investment equals saving. Okay, investment equals saving is kind of hard to wrap your head around because businesses do investment, but households do saving. So how do those two decisions, you know, those two separate decisions, how is it such that they turn out to be equal to each other? Well, the mm-hmm. mainstream answers that with the loanable funds market. They say, well, it must be oh, interest yeah. rates. Interest rates are the thing that adjusts so that however much money businesses want to borrow, that's how much money households want to lend because interest rates will adjust until, you know, if there's too much lending money, interest rates will uh, fall, I guess, until people don't want to lend anymore. And so that that's how that whole mechanism works out. And again, that mm-hmm. that's treating money as special. Money is the thing that businesses need to do to do this investment. And so they got to get it from somewhere and savers have the money. Okay. On the other hand, from the MMT perspective, money isn't special. It's just another IOU. And so if businesses need to invest, okay, first of all, us coming from more realistic perspective, we would point out that actually- oh, It's like a, lot, a precious yeah. resource, I think is what you're saying. Money is more precious and scarce in the mainstream view. I think is what you're saying that that's what that's what's special about it is that it's that it's scarce. I I think that's a scarce commodity. That it, where it's not special in MMT is that as long as you you know can prove that you will you know not default that they'll they'll create it for you. It's not special. It's just an IOU. The bank will create a loan for you. I think that's I think that's on in the ballpark anyway. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean that, and again, this is one of the big messaging hurdles we have. If I I could count, it would take years for me to count how many times I've had to yell at people on Twitter that money is not a scarce resource. Finance is not scarce, right? Finance is just coordinating. Finance is Mm. a coordination mechanism, right? We we you know a business needs to invest. They want to buy something. How are they going to buy it? Well, they did. They do something with the accounting. They issue an IOU, or they go to the bond market, or they do something to get the goods they need. Right? Finance is the coordination uh, mechanism that makes that happen. Finance isn't scarce. If we need more, if finance is the limiting factor, we just don't have enough money to make this happen. But we have everything else. We can just create more money. That's that's never an issue, right? But you're okay, right. Yeah. In in the in the in the kind of standard conception. Well, first of all, the the assumption is is always at least to start, the baseline is that we're at full employment, right? And so right. any more spending that we do is gonna be is, is gonna be problematic unless, right, we take it from somewhere else, right? So that's kind of part right. of this money scarcity story. Um, but so going back to investment and loanable funds, so I was gonna say, first of all, from a realist point of view, 
we are much more ready to acknowledge that a lot of business investment is not financed by borrowing at all. It's financed by retained earnings, right? So a business sells stuff, they earn a profit, and then they hold on to the money, and then later they'll use it to do some investment. So it has nothing to do with borrowing at all, right, mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, but even in cases where businesses do borrow, right, the picture that we might have as the baseline in our heads as MMTers is not this like you got to run to the bond market and find somebody with money story. It's really, it really is about money creation in some form or another, right? And whether that's a business issuing IOUs directly to its suppliers, like trade credit, that's a thing that happens. Or maybe that's you go to a bank and the bank creates the money, loans create deposits, that's a thing that happens. And then maybe, you know, the third option might be you go to the bond market and you borrow money from somebody who has it already. But even in that case, what you're doing is issuing an IOU and that's really the thing that's buying the goods for you. The money comes in as a catalyst, really. This is the, the metaphor I like to use here. The money comes into that kind of transaction as, as like a chemical catalyst. You know, like in chemistry, you get a catalyst is like a molecule that comes into a reaction but isn't consumed by it. It leaves unchanged out the other side, right? And then is available to like catalyze other chemical reactions. Well, that's what happens when you borrow money as well. Really, mm-hmm. what's it, even borrowing money is, in my view, kind of a form of money creation. You issue an IOU, and that's the thing that makes the purchase. The actual money is just the catalyst. It's a decision. It's a decision. It's a decision to create that money. The decision is the catalyst. Well, I, I'm using catalyst to refer to like the pre-existing money, right? Like if I borrow, if I go to the bond market, I sell a bond to get some money in order to buy a factory or something like that or build a factory, let's say, then the, the money that I borrow, it, it was, you know, maybe it was in a saver's hands, but then I borrow it and I spend it and it's going to go right back into saver's hands. Like it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not like savings are consumed, like financial savings are, financial savings are not consumed by borrowing. All they do is change hands, right? It goes from one person's hand to another's to another's and then, and then it's right back available to be lent again. And so again, for us, finance isn't scarce. Even borrowing money doesn't consume financial resources in that kind of sense. Mm. And we could talk about other things. We could talk about balance sheet constraints or financial regulatory constraints, right? That might constrain who can who can provide finance and under what circumstances. But it's not that the finance itself is scarce. Money is not scarce. That's so important. Yeah, no, actually that that feels like a little bit of a light bulb. So it's so the fact that money is special is literally the idea that there is a scarce amount of money, which implies that it is a physical thing, a physical commodity. And so if I'm going to get money, I have to get it from somebody else. I have to rip it out of somebody else's hands, zero, zero sum. Um, yeah, you know, you're absolutely and, right. And, and it's really because their conception of money starts with the gold standard, right? Starts with like physical gold being money. Um, and like another aspect of this that I think is, is, is worth noting is like this, con- that conception of money as being special, as being, you know, some, the gold is the analogy for money in that conception. It also views the money supply as very static. And this is why like people who favor Bitcoin are always talking about, oh, how great it is that Bitcoin is going to have a fixed amount and it's not going to be, yeah, you're not going to be able to have more Bitcoin than that because for them, mm-hmm. that's, if money is this physical thing and money is this scarce thing, it's a commodity, then that's what you want. That's what you want, this fixed amount. But for mm-hmm. us, again, money's an IOU. 
IOUs come into existence all the time when you, whenever you write an IOU and they blink out of existence all the time as well when IOUs get redeemed, which is like every second of every day. So for us, the money supply is not like this fixed thing. It's all over the place. It's up and down. It's expanding. It's contracting. It breathes with the economy. And for us, hmm. that's very important. That provides flexibility or elasticity so that the system can stabilize in the face of uncertainty and in the face of fluctuations. Interesting. Okay, really interesting. Uh, I was in a, uh, you know, in a, in a Stephanie under a Stephanie Kelton tweet, just like you know, saying whatever I was saying, and then some Bitcoin person comes in and he said thank you, and he put put, put a, a picture, a screenshot that he purchased a Bitcoin, like you know, because because whatever. It's just I inspired him to buy a Bitcoin because we were talking about MMT. But in the screenshot, what did he buy the Bitcoin with? But U.S. dollars. <laughs> I don't know. I just found that funny. Um, I think for uh, so, every person who buys a Bitcoin with dollars, there's somebody who's selling a Bitcoin with dollars. So, oh, I thought you were going to say like an angel earns his wing or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let me ask a related question that I got from uh, regarding loanable funds from one of my a good question I got from one of my patrons, and his question is, uh, and, and I'm I'm going to put more context to his question in the show notes, but basically what he's saying is. What is the mainstream response to the sectoral balances view of account of national accounting? That's his question. And my my elaborating on that just a little bit is the idea of loanable funds really sort of uh, puts uh, sectoral balances on its head because if the if the government borrows from commercial banks, then the money it may go you know it may come to the government and then bounce right back out again when they spend it. But if they borrow from commercial banks, then sectoral balances doesn't work because the, the the spending government spending is just moving money around in the non-government sector. So what is the mainstream response to sectoral balances if there is one? Um so I, I think uh like this is actually related to the saving and investment thing. But the issue is, okay, so the, the equations that you would look at for sector balances, and some of your listeners might have seen them, but they involve, you know, to get the sector balance equation in, in terms of national accounts, you start with like the GDP equation, and GDP comes from spending, and then so that spending creates income, and then income, you can do things with the income, and you equate them, and you end up with an equation that basically has the sector balances and the confusing thing is, and you know, some of your listeners might have seen this and been confused, and frankly, it's horrifically confusing, is that, mm -hmm. okay, the sector balances relates the government deficit or the government, the government balance and the foreign balance and the private balance. And the government balance is pretty straightforward. It's you know, government spending and taxes. Okay, easy enough. The private balance is kind of straightforward-ish as well. You're talking about... Um, really you're talking about the current account deficit or surplus, but you know, trade deficit or surplus similar enough. Um, the, the private sector, the domestic private sector balance is the confusing one because in the NEPA, in, in the, in the national product accounts equations, it ends up being S minus I saving minus investment. That's the private sector balance. And I think the, the, the mainstream, looks at that and says, okay, so you're telling us that in order for the private sector to save more than they invest, then the government needs to run a deficit, let's, let's say, or, you know, forget the foreign sector, 
the government needs mm-hmm. to run a deficit if the private sector wants to save more than it invests. So their response is like, okay, who cares? Like, what is what is saving more than investment? You know, what is what is the significance of that? And for us, the significance is that it's not really about saving an investment in in the way that like normal people think of those words, right? The easiest way to think about sector balances is, and this is what I did in my class last semester, is you just take, imagine two people and they're on a desert island and they, they're they buying and selling stuff from each other back and forth with transactions, right? And how do they do it? Maybe they've got money or maybe they've got, they're writing IOUs, whatever, but they're selling things back and forth to each other, right? Well, if there's only two of us, then my income necessarily comes from your spending, and your income necessarily comes from my spending. There's just no, nowhere else for it to come from. And so the only way that my spending can be less than my income, so for me to save, right, for me to run a surplus, the only way that's even possible is if your spending is more than your income, because it's the same thing. So again, so it's uh, the only way for me to run a surplus if there's just two of us is for you to run a deficit, because it's the same thing. My surplus oh, and your deficit yep. are the exact mm-hmm. same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, for for us as MMTers, we, we we see surplus and we're thinking saving, right? Spending less than your income—that's what people on the street mean by saving, right? If someone says I saved up money, what they mean is I spent less than I earned, right? Economists, on the other hand, mainstream economists in particular, use a different definition for the word saving. When mainstream economists say saving, what they mean is Income, and income here means resources produced, so we produced goods and services. Goods and services that have been produced but not consumed. That's what saving means for them. Oh. Produced goods and services that have not been consumed, right? That's different than money that you earned but haven't spent yet because there are some things that you can spend money on that aren't consumption, Right? Consumption means like I use up a good and then it's gone. I buy an apple, I eat it, it's gone. I consumed an apple, right? But some things you buy up and they're not gone. So I buy a house and the house isn't gone, right? I spent money, but I didn't consume anything, right? Mm. Or you buy a car or you buy a washing machine or whatever. Maybe those things like slowly get consumed over their lifetime. But, you know, at the moment you spend the money, you, you have bought a durable good, you've bought something, you've you've spent money, but you haven't consumed anything, right? So for your average person on the street, if you say saving, they're probably not thinking of like their washing machine as their savings. But Hmm. in some technical sense, if, if you define saving in the mainstream econ way as resources that are produced but not consumed, if you buy a washing machine, you have not used up any of your savings. The washing machine is now part of your savings. Right? Your savings are in the form of a washing machine because it's a resource that got produced and it hasn't been consumed. So for us, we're looking at that and we're saying, I mean, not that I'm going to dispute, you know, you can have multiple definitions of the word saving, but the point is that we say, and I think this is like anybody pretty much will agree, you know, just from their own behavior that this is true, that people care not just about their saving in the mainstream economic sense, but about their financial surplus, their financial saving about spending less than you earn, right? When Mm. people say things like, I saved up money to make a down payment on this house, right? Again, in the mainstream econ sense, 
it's not that you just consumed your savings by making a down payment. Your savings now just exist in the form of your home equity, right? Hmm. Um, but in our this sense, really makes me think yeah. of Marx's uh, MCM Prime. Okay, well, just to reiterate, I'm saying that when when mainstream econs see, oh, the private balance is saving minus investment, S minus I, that's not particularly meaningful for them because they think, okay, households have preferences about saving, right? And again, I'm saying that they define saving in this very particular way, resources not consumed, that doesn't really comport with what like your average Joe on the street thinks of saving. Your average mm-hmm. Joe on the street thinks of saving as I spent less than I earned. That's what MMT and, is talking about by the concept of a surplus. So, so let me get this straight. So resources that have been con- purchased but not used, not consumed, that is which that is the which ver, uh, definition of savings. That's mainstream? that's like that's the mainstream or national accounts definition of saving. So if whenever okay. you see like S equals I or S minus I, that's what that S means. That saving is resources not consumed, produced but not consumed, right? Okay, and and does that does that not also con, uh, include like you know what what regular people would call savings, money in the bank? Um. Whether it's talking about the money or the resources gets a little bit hairy. <laughs> okay, um, we don't we don't need to go into that. And actually, I can say that you had a pretty in depth conversation with Christian and Patricia, the episode that I think was just released yesterday, on the meaning of more focused on the meaning of of investment. But but you really get I think more into this topic with them. Yeah, um, I mean, well, really, where I'm just trying to go here is like. Um, to us, what we're interested in is the, your surplus, your financial surplus, money you have earned but not spent. And I, okay. I'm, I mean money, but really just financial assets, right? You, mm-hmm. Your financial portfolio gets bigger mm-hmm. um, when you earn money but don't spend it. You can buy financial assets, you can buy stocks or something, but that's part of your financial savings, right? On the other hand, if you're going to buy a fridge or buy a house, um, okay, that's not you you've actually run down your financial savings to do that right if i i had money in the bank but then i use it to buy a, a car i don't have that money anymore somebody else has it so the fine for that that eats into my financial surplus right it doesn't eat into savings in this real resource sense in this mainstream sense of resources not consumed okay and there's sometimes when you want to use that sense if you're talking about like the whole economy, and you're talking about like where are our resources going? Well, we might want to know how much is going to consumption, how much is going to investment, how much is going to the government. And so we would look at, well, how much got produced but not consumed. Like that could matter to you. But if you're talking about individuals and their their uh, their behavior, then I, I think the MOT position is probably that it's this financial surplus that's sort of more important for household decisions, that financial mm-hmm. that households want to run financial surpluses. And therefore, the private sector as a whole wants to run financial surpluses. And so that can only come from, you know, the government deficit or the foreign sector running a deficit against us. Okay. All right. And and, and regarding MCM Prime, that, that I mean, it, that really is just the goal is to increase your financial assets, which is more on the in line with the MMT version of what savings ah, yeah, is. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. Um, so is there anything else regarding uh, the mainstream you know, response to uh, sectoral balances to, to close that part of it out before I go on? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's the story. Really is we're all looking at the same equations because the equations are all, they're true by definition. So everybody agrees about what the equations are. But, that, you know, if you have an equation with like eight variables in it, then you can write it in a bunch of different ways, depending on which ones you put on the left and which ones you put on the right. And then you can uh. interpret it a bunch of different ways, depending on which ones you think cause which other ones and which ones you think are the ones that, you know, actors, households or businesses actually care about and which ones they don't care about. So it's about lo we're looking at the same equations and interpreting them differently. Okay, I understand. So, so if you interpret the variables differently, then obviously, even though we might agree on the overall formula, it doesn't matter because we're talking about different things. That's that's what it boils down to. Um, okay, uh, the the natural rate of interest, which is the real rate of interest. So, the natural rate of interest is like an unobservable thing, like the natural rate of unemployment. Okay, let me start over. It's the central bank sets the nominal interest, which is the shortest term interest. They do not, in the mainstream view, have control over longer term interest rates because that is set by so-called real forces in the market, actual people in the marketplace. The government, the central bank, the issuer is helpless to affect the real interest rate, which implies that they're a dainty little flower, that the market is in control, that individuals are the sovereigns. And that the issuer is, you know, is under the control of the individual sovereigns in the market. So on one hand, the government is a dainty little flower. The issuer is a dainty little thing. And they're helpless. On the other hand, with this concern of long-term fiscal sustainability, anything that the government does is not just redundant and pointless. It could be devastating. It, it could easily be devastating. Hyperinflation, the concern about hyperinflation, uh, effective default to avoid hyperinflation. So the issuer, the government, the central government issues the currency. They can issue currency. They can destroy currency. They can issue bonds. They can destroy bonds. They can create laws. They can destroy laws. They can enforce laws. And they have an army. <laughs> and so that seems like quite a contradiction to say that the, in one, on one hand that the government is helpless, and on the other hand, they're obviously not helpless. Like, how do they? How, how does that even square? I mean, that just seems to be completely nonsensical. Yeah, and it goes bigger than just fiscal sustainability, too. Like you, I mean, you're talking about laws, but like, there's this view <laughs> that capitalism is the greatest system we've ever known. But at the same time, it is extremely fragile. And if the government messes with it even a little bit, it will collapse and it will be a disaster, <laughs> right? And, and that view is hard to square because if capitalism really is so fragile, then like it sounds like it's not all that great. Like maybe we don't want it mm. if it's so fragile. And, and really the truth is that it's not so fragile. Like uh, capitalism as a system and you know private market systems can operate under a lot of different kinds of conditions, um, we see it, you know, like we see markets in more authoritarian places, you know, Russia or China or whatever. And, and, and they function, it happens like goods get produced and they get where they're going. So a lot of that is totally ideological, right? Which is, uh, the people who want less constraints on the market and so that they can exploit people more or, or even just, you know, make more of an honest profit. Some of them are honest. I will grant you that, you know, they'll, they'll support a theory that says, is the world is better if uh, if the government stays out of the picture, right? Whether that's true or not. I mean, I think that that view and part of the reason that 
you know, we would reject the premise really is because that view starts with, and this is another aspect of mainstream economics, and it's related to methodological individualism, starting with the individual, assuming that the individual comes first, and then other things come later. Individuals get together, they make markets, government comes in after, and, you know, tips the scales one way or the other, but is an afterthought to this, to this market exchange thing that's fundamental, right? And we say like, no, 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 come on. That's, that's not what happened. That's not historical. That's not what we see when we look around. Really what happens is people get together to form groups and then those groups shape their own activities, right? People get together and they form a government and then the government forms markets. The government issues the currency that people use or that the financial system depends on. Like it, it, it's much more of this feedback or, or dialectical, you might even say, process between individuals and society, between individuals and organizations, between organizations and bigger organizations or the government. Um, it, it's much more of a two-way process that involves mutual adjustment. And we have to keep in mind which one of those actors has the monopoly on violence, right? It is the state. And, and there's a reason that, that dictatorships have a reputation for ruthless efficiency. Uh-huh. It's because if you have one person in charge who just dictates everything that's going to happen, well, then, you know, they're just going to get it all done. Everything, you know, you cut out the obstruction, you cut out the bickering, the negotiation, the back and forth, you just do what I say and make it happen now or else you're dead. Well, mm-hmm. then, you know, things are going to happen quickly and it can be ruthlessly efficient. I'm not saying that, I mean, I'm not obviously not endorsing that kind of thing, but <laughs> th- this idea that like, you know, that, uh, that the, the only way for things to be efficient is out there through haggling in the market is just like profoundly ahistorical and ignores all the ways that laws shape practically everything that happens in markets. And it, I mean, the, the power exists. It's just a matter of where it's going to be. You know, it's, it's just a choice of distribution as opposed to, you know, the government is helpless. Actually, the Neil Wilson, who is just uh, on uh, talking with Phil Armstrong,
Today I talk with Sam Levy on the fundamental assumptions that underlie mainstream or neoclassical economics. Sam is a research scholar with the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, a PhD candidate in economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, or UMKC, and a co-founder of the online advocacy group Deficit Owls. This is part one of a two-part conversation, but it's also part two of a larger four-part series about the relationship between mainstream and MMT. Parts one and four are with Dirk Entz and Oscar Voltzgaard. Before getting to the heart of our conversation, Sam gives an update on his progress towards his PhD and dissertation topic. Regarding mainstream assumptions, as a jumping off point, I'm going to briefly review the paper I discussed last week with Dirk and Oscar, which is a 2019 paper by Danish economist Jeppe Drudel. The paper is called A Kinder Egg on MMT, and it summarizes the common mainstream concern for the long-term fiscal sustainability of government spending and its corresponding debt and interest on the debt. Since MMT makes it clear that much more spending on public purpose is perfectly safe, let alone desperately needed, the mainstream argument is often focused directly onto the MMT project. In brief, under mainstream assumptions, if you model out government spending to infinity, which at a minimum means 75 to 100 years, there are grave concerns. The issuer may be forced to make one of exactly two terrible choices. Either issue currency to pay off its debt and the interest, which would obviously cause hyperinflation, or despite the ability to issue its own currency, voluntarily default on its obligations in order to avoid the hyperinflation. Either way, the result is genuine economic Armageddon. For more details of this argument, I recommend that you listen to last week's episode and also read the post that I wrote that was inspired by it. A link to both can be found in the show notes. The post has links to papers by Yeppe, Dirk and Oscar, three important ones by Scott Fulweiler, and more. Sam and I also talk about the many other related assumptions and topics of mainstream economics. This includes deductive versus inductive reasoning, quantitative versus qualitative research methods, the Great Depression versus the Great Vacation, and statistical overfitting. We also discuss the paradoxical mainstream view of how the central government and its bank are seen as both a helpless and dainty little flower who can do nothing to stop market set interest rates and bond vigilantes, and at the same time, a potentially catastrophically destructive force that can turn recessions into depressions. We also answer a question by a patron of activist MMT, Alexander, regarding the mainstream response to sectoral balances in the context of loanable funds. Sam also describes how and why mainstream economics considers money to be special. Basically, in the mainstream view, money is a scarce physical thing. In other words, just another commodity. This means that the only way for someone in the non-government sector, citizens and businesses, to get new money is for it to be ripped out of the hands of another citizen or business. Under the theory of loanable funds, even the currency issuer must get its money from the non-government sector, and so must also be ripped from the hands of someone else. Hence, government spending is a zero-sum game and causes crowding out. 
because in this view, money is scarce. Although mainstream understands that the issuer issues, their assumption of full employment means that issuing currency without matching it one-to-one -one with taxation or bond sales, what they call printing money, is always potentially inflationary. This is because if everything is already employed, then there is nothing left to buy. Finally, MMT recognizes that all kinds of money, including reserves, cash, bonds, and other treasuries, are not scarce, but just different types of IOUs. As Sam told me, finance itself is not scarce, it's a coordination mechanism. This insight and reality changes the battle from, from whose hands will we take the money, to who will we put in charge of this coordination. As MMT asserts, the latter has always been the case. The former is predicated on the assumption that our money can and never will be coordinated by government and hence us. But even if it were, it would obviously be done poorly. As Neil Wilson said to Phil Armstrong on their recent Gower Initiative interview, the plane works fine, we just need a new crew. Sam takes this further by saying that we need a new process by which to choose the crew. However, if money truly were scarce and special, as in the mainstream view, then even if we did get money out of our politics, even if we did get a new process, and even if we did get a new and good crew, none of it would matter. Because if the money really was scarce in this way, then in order to do anything, we would always have to rip it out of the hands of somebody in order to pay for it. We as citizens and the government that is supposed to represent us can never be in charge of coordinating our money. And not so coincidentally, all of these assumptions happen to be very convenient for those already in power. Regarding other mainstream assumptions, I discussed the neutrality of money in episode 57, which is part two with Asad Zaman, and I discussed historical time in last week's episode with Dirk and Oscar.